Welcome to Harlow on Healthcare. I'm David Harlow, and I invite you to join me by my virtual hearth as I sit down with healthcare leaders to discuss building the future of healthcare. Today, my guest is David Sand, who's an MD and an MBA, Chief Medical Officer at Z Omega. As Chief Medical Officer, he provides an overall clinical vision to the company thought leadership, clinical direction on product development, and work as the company's markets evolve. David is a board-certified otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon, worked in solo practice for 12 years, and transitioned to other roles across the industry, has served as chief medical officer to entities contracted with state and federal health program agencies, and also as chief medical officer serving in multiple Medicare Advantage Medicaid health plans. David, welcome and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, David. I'm glad to be here. Z Omega supports health plans and other risk-bearing organizations in delivering integrated health management, and that cuts across a number of domains, I understand like utilization management, case management, analytics capabilities of various sorts. And one of my favorite catchphrases, population health management. And I, as I was thinking about our conversation today, I was thinking back to a time when I was asked, it was probably, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, one of the schools of public health was interviewing a bunch of people and asking the question, posing the question, what is population health? So for today, I looked up my answer, the answer that I gave seven years ago, and I will ask you to critique it with me, and then maybe that leads us into a discussion of what Z Omega is all about and what you're trying to do in terms of helping the system. So I'll apologize. It's probably... A little verbose. I'm a recovering attorney, and you know, people say if I get paid by the word, that's you know, things go on a little too long sometimes. Here's what I said, and I'll 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 take your feedback. So, population health is both a means and an end. The goal is to improve the collective health status of the population at large in a given geographic area. The goal can only be accomplished through a combination of first behavior change, which has to be promoted in a tailored manner using an array of appropriate tools, not only through traditional healthcare channels, to different subsets of the population, whether it's chronically ill elders, new moms, engaged patients, millennials, baby boomer weekend warriors, and so forth. And second, it's a, also a combination of evidence-based medicine focused on both prevention treatment of injury and disease, improving function and happiness for individuals who make up the population. So I'll ask you, how did I do? You did great. You, you hit on a number of very important topics. To, to start with, understanding the population. Populations are diverse, and you called out a number of different uh, segments within the population, cohorts, if you will, and understanding those cohorts, whether it's in terms of uh, their demographics, their chronic disease burden, uh, or any other factors which they share, 
in order to influence them. You know, years ago, John Maxwell said, uh, power is influence. And, you know, we'd love to be able to change behaviors in the population to get people to do what we know is good for them based on the evidence basis. But people don't do things to us. They do them for themselves. And it's understanding what motivates folks and how you can steer groups of individuals to follow better healthcare behaviors. Uh, the same way we put guardrails on the highways to keep people from running into uh, the, the bridge abutments, uh, it's kind of a concept between population health managers. Previously, we were sitting a, uh, a driving instructor in each car, and that was case management. Now we actually structure the system to create better outcomes. So that means supporting not only individual customers, patients, members, but also supporting all of the folks along the care delivery chain as well, right? So we're talking about when we say guardrails, we're talking about clinical practice guidelines and, and, and what else? Oh, certainly it's the best evidence, the evidence-based practices, and how we can enable folks to utilize those more easily. And, and this really is a, a topic that spans across the entire healthcare spectrum, and I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later, uh, but how do we make it easy for people to do the things that we'd like them to do, that we, we know are beneficial for them to do? So in terms of enabling those along the journey for our uh, healthcare partners, providers, health plans, uh, we want to take a look at automation, optimization, efficiencies along the way, and how can we leverage the tools that we have available while incorporating those best practices and the evidence basis within healthcare? Uh, and then how can we use those tools to outreach to individuals whom we would like to contact, whom we would like to influence, and whom we know we can assist, uh, whether it's with uh, social programs uh, or the more traditional, conventional um, medical, surgical, and behavioral health uh, tools that we have at our disposal. So, so, David, let's get a little more concrete. And so we can talk about, you know, we've sort of evolved from thinking about cost of care to cost of wellness, or we think about evolving from sick care to well care. Uh, we need to think from the perspective of a plan or any other risk-bearing entity in healthcare? How do we reduce cost while increasing quality? All those good things. So how does all of that come together in your field of vision in a concrete example or two? I think there are a couple of ways that we can take a look at optimizing the cost of care. Certainly within government-sponsored programs, we're going to have a minimum um, benefit ratio that we we need to meet. The government wants to make sure that of the dollars for which we have a fiduciary responsibility, we are spending a minimum for the benefit of our members. Uh, so I don't know that we're ever going to significantly drop below that roughly 85% threshold. Now, to the extent that we're able to keep ourselves down to that, uh, there are a couple of places we can look. Right now, the over-medicalization at end of life 
is a tremendous cost in the system. And beginning to rationalize that and uh, educating, counseling, and frankly, for providers not to be afraid to talk about these issues is one important way we can take a look at some of that cost. 75% of Medicare costs are within the last year of life, if not within the last three months of life. But even more so, our system tends to be very reactive. Someone has a problem, they file a claim, we pay for it. Uh, They have an episode of care, we pay for it. Generally speaking, it's related to something untoward that has happened to them. On the other hand, if we take a look at managing their health, not their chronic, their, their episodes of care, but managing their health, leading through their, their health care journey, I think we can avoid a lot of these brush fires, if, if not forest fires, along the way. Uh, and we can avoid these large expenditures. Generally speaking, taking care of uh, wellness is a much more predictable and cost-effective way to take care of health rather than waiting for something to go wrong and taking care of and paying for the catastrophic results of that. So we are deluged. The modern medical industrial complex has deluged us with guidelines, clinical practice guidelines, etc. I saw a piece recently that said that if a if a PCP were to follow all recommended care management guidelines for a typical sized panel of patients, he or she would be able to do that while working 27 hours a day. That's so, about right. <laughs> so what's wrong with this picture and, and how do we move the ball forward? Yeah, I think we've made some gains in terms of, and and I'll use a a rather generic term, physician extenders. Uh, We need to think about how healthcare is delivered, but it's not the exclusive domain of physicians or of a single group of individuals. Because as you said, it's entirely impossible. It's overwhelming for any one individual to know everything. We used to joke that... uh, The generalist knows less and less about more and more until he knows nothing about everything, whereas the specialist knows more and more about less and less until he knows everything about nothing. Uh, It's just not a problem that that any one individual can tackle. So as as we take a look not only at leveraging human resources, we can also take a look again at those guardrails and how we leverage automation, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and create systems that literally sit on the shoulders of practitioners and guide them along the way based on billions, literally billions of data points that we have uh, to propensity match to those individuals uh, who have experienced similar conditions in similar situations so that we can, we can leverage that knowledge and literally spoon feed it in some of these cases. So let's look under the hood a little bit, if we can, because I understand that's what Zomega offers for risk-bearing entities, including uh, care delivery systems. So what's on offer from your end? How are you making this work better? For years now, we, we've had a powerful rules engine within the platform 
that automates a lot of these decision points so that those who are using the system understand what the next best step is based on the evidence basis, best practice, that we as a company research continuously and update regularly. So if uh, a certain situation should arise, the user of our platform will understand, okay, based on years of evidence or best practice, what should happen next? And aligning that with the individual. Uh, Similarly, we are now very deep into artificial intelligence machine learning, utilizing the data points that are available, understanding the propensities and the the associations between these these data points for individuals and what's going, not only what's going to happen next for them, but what should happen next for them in terms of care intervention uh, so that the, the practitioner doesn't have to do the research each and every single time, but the system guides the individual based on that practice at the same time, allowing room for individual discretion. Uh, because this is not cookie cutter. Medicine is is still an art in many ways, not, not a cookie cutter science. So while the system guides, there's still uh, the, the ability to adapt. If you're just tuning in, this is Harlow on Healthcare, coming to you on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm David Harlow, and my guest today is David Sand, Chief Medical Officer of Zomega. David, we're talking about AI and other tools that would be based on many data points. And of course, there's concern about bias and transparency around AI. And I'm curious if you could share any background from your company's perspective or your broader perspective on how we address this in healthcare. Are we doing a good job? Where can we improve? What's the current status? I'm not sure, David, that I can speak to what everyone is doing in healthcare. There are certainly well-known examples of bias that has been built into systems with things like facial recognition and others. Uh, At Zomega, we develop our algorithms in in an agnostic manner, taking a look at the data, testing to see what yields the best clinical and accurate outcomes And then we have a concept called explainable AI. We actually part the curtains and let our clients look and see the the factors that go into these machine learning algorithms and the influence that each one individually has and then as a group they have on the outcomes of the algorithm. So understanding uh, to the extent possible the propensity that a behavioral health diagnosis might have in the ML outcome or other types of social determinants, physical conditions, consumer behaviors. Uh, We're very transparent about that to avoid these hidden biases that could potentially creep in. Great. And two follow-ups there. One is, do you have any sort of forum like a user group to sort of collect feedback uh, against that transparency? And maybe also to think about how do you address social determinants through maybe another door in a, in a healthcare organization? So 
from the standpoint of user groups, these are a work in progress. Uh, we have polled our clients, close to 40 of them, and there's tremendous interest in a variety of different user groups. So we're beginning mm -hmm. to be in those now. Uh, we have made a concerted effort over the past year as far as meeting with our clients, particularly at the executive level. We've had very close and, and productive relationships at the management and operational levels, and now we're getting that feedback at the, uh, at the executive level as well. So more to come very soon as user groups are a work in progress. From the standpoint of social determinants, you know, there's this concept of, of no wrong door in a health plan. So referrals can be made by the individual, by the family, by the physician, by uh, caregivers, other groups in the organization, uh, or in the community, pardon me. Anyone can make a referral into these social programs. We have a, a really a unique solution called social care, which relies on uh, AI and machine learning to take a look at uh, the, the publicly available data for communities down to the census tract level and understand what's going on in that community. We allow our clients then to compare their populations to those communities to see where their members are living and what are the likely conditions which they are experiencing. Being able then to drill down on those cohorts, um, and now we're talking really about true active population health management, being able to take a look at those cohorts in certain areas based on those characteristics and begin to identify individuals, assess individuals using other tools, and begin to address the concerns, the challenges that those individuals may have. But at the same time, at a higher level, understanding the prevalence of certain challenges within a community, within a population or a population cohort, and having the insights to craft strategy. I've been at very large health plans and I've been at very small health plans, and our resources are quite different. At the small health plans, I wouldn't dream of trying to tackle the housing issues in my community. I just couldn't, I couldn't make a big enough dent in it with the resources that I had available. So what's the next best thing that I can do to, to craft my strategy to address social determinants in my population? And our social care tool allows plans to get that vision, that line of sight into what's going on in the population so that they can tackle these problems. So your company is working with, we, we said earlier, health plans and other risk-bearing entities could be provider organizations. Are these Medicare and Medicaid plans? Are they commercial plans? Are they distributed across the country? What What are we talking about overall in broad strokes? Yeah, all the above, David. Uh, we, we started off with our first client in the Pacific Northwest. We go from Washington to Florida, uh, New England, uh, to the southern tip of California, and everybody in between. It's government-sponsored plans, commercial plans, providers, uh, the new term now is payviders as we look at risk-bearing yes. So, yes, we, we make this available. And, you know, as, as value-based care continues to evolve past simply just P for P or uh, incentives for hitting certain quality levels or financial marks, 
but understanding, uh, and particularly for providers to understand how they take on risk and what that really means, uh, the tools that we've developed for the payers translate very, very well into the provider and payvider market. Sure. So in the time that you've been doing this, have you seen the need or have you advocated for changes in metrics that are being tracked either by government or other industry standards groups? And in other arenas I've seen over time where, you know, if we focus on 10, 20 metrics, whatever it is, over a certain period of time, we get really good at hitting those metrics and knocking them out of the park. And so then at a certain point, it makes sense to retire those measures and bring in new ones, right? So I'm wondering if you've seen that in this arena. Certainly in the government-sponsored space, uh, particularly in the Medicare Advantage space, plans are responsible to report their HEDIS uh, metrics on a yearly basis. Uh, in addition, there's more emphasis being placed on the member experience, so CAPS and HAAS are becoming increasingly important for plans to track. The good news about HEDIS is that the NCQA has aligned many of these metrics with best practice quality care. And you're right, over years, plans get better and better and better at achieving very high marks for many of these metrics, at which point NCQA in fact does retire or sunset these measures, put new measures on display, and eventually roll them into uh, the active measures on which plans must report. So that landscape is constantly shifting. Uh, one of the advantages, one of the benefits of the Zomega Population Health Management Platform, Jiva, is that it allows our clients the flexibility to determine many of the metrics that they want to follow. As we move into population health and leverage uh, advanced analytics, it gives plans the ability to formulate an hypothesis, query the data, visualize those results, and then through the rules engine, automate action on those cohorts or that population and track the results. I think plans will always be interested in many of the standard metrics, such as readmissions or their financial metrics. But this also gives plans the opportunity to set a benchmark, take an action, and then analyze the results to determine their success, their ROI, quite frankly, and whether they need to modify their approach. So there's great flexibility for our clients to determine what they want the metrics to be. Uh, and to determine whether the actions they are taking are effective in moving the needle on those metrics. David, from your perspective, what did we learn? What was the experience over the past several years living with COVID? And what are we learning as we're hopefully coming out of that period? <laughs> well, and, and this, this gets to um, the last question, I think, David, that you wanted to tee up. You know, yeah, where do we go from here? Where are we going to be in five years? Yeah, where are we going to be in five years? I think what we've learned as we went into the pandemic and are, you know, coming out of the worst of it, hopefully, uh, is that there is a tremendous amount of inertia in the healthcare system. What I would love to see 
in five years is a shift in the paradigm of how individuals access care. We had seen a tremendous expansion in the use of telemedicine. And now that we're coming out of, of the crisis stage, at least, that demand for telemedicine has contracted drastically. I've seen right, it right. Uh, in my networks at other plans make every effort they possibly could to get patients back into the office. Well, I'm sorry. If your favorite restaurant were only open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, how often would you go there for dinner? Probably not that often. <laughs> we ask patients to do things that are truly inconvenient. And I think patients have decided, have, have figured out there are options. Uh, at one of my previous plans, I instituted a program that had in-home acute care, behavioral health care, uh, palliative care, end-of-life care, medically tailored home-delivered meals, remote patient monitoring, all done from the comfort of the individual's home. And there was tremendous adoption. I think that, you know, years ago we talked about consumerism in healthcare. I think that this has awakened consumers again to understand that there are options. And as a as a healthcare system, we have to realize our role in serving our patients, not demanding that they conform to what we expect. Okay. Well, sounds like we're on a path in that direction. You'd like to see us get there sooner. Maybe it's a five-year plan, or maybe we do get there sooner. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. It has been my absolute pleasure, David. Thank you so much for having me on. You have been listening to Harlow on Healthcare. Join us at healthcarenowradio.com. Let's continue the conversation on building the future of healthcare together at hashtag Harlow on HC. I'm David Harlow, keeping the fire going and holding a seat open for you. Until next time. <laughs>